Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 28th, 2021, a Friday. It's late morning in the Bay Area. And once again, as all too often, it's technology in the headlines. This time, um, the Russians, the bad Russians, appear to be carrying, this is according to the New York Times, carrying out a hack through systems used uh, by the SolarWinds attack. The, the Russian agents or Russian hackers are infiltrating American email to, to find out all our, our bad secrets. Um, Lots of headlines about this. It's the main headline on Tech Meme, the uh, influential technology source for, that all tech people out here look at. Um, here's the description by uh, on the situation by uh, David Sanger and Nicole Perlroth, who was just on the show from the New York Times. Uh, I'm quoting them. Hackers linked to Russian intelligence surreptitiously seized an email system used by the United States government's international aid agency to burrow into the computer networks of human rights groups and other organizations of the sort that have been critical of President Vladimir V. Putin, uh, Microsoft Corporation disclosed on Thursday. So the Russians are burrowing in and uh, in, in, in nonfiction, but as so often, it's the fictional writers who get this story first. Uh, my guest today has a wonderful new novel out called Imposter Syndrome. Uh, the author is Kathy Wang, and it's about Russians quite literally burrowing into Silicon Valley, uh, imposing themselves as imposters. Uh, Kathy, you Hi. are speaking to me from Palo Alto. Yeah. <laughs> The heart of Silicon Valley. This uh, this this Russian story. Uh, I, I assume it's rather amusing to you, since uh, your new book, uh, Imposter Syndrome, is about a different kind of borrowing. Tell me about it. Uh, so it is amusing, but you know, also of course, always concerning. Uh, my book, Imposter Syndrome, essentially asks the question: What if one of the world's most powerful female technology executives? was in fact a Russian agent, uh, someone who was originally placed in the country to kind of exist at a more middle manager level, but who is now has now risen to a very high position. Uh, so what happens when you know the asks on their side increase and they're asked to put their quite cushy life in danger as well by fulfilling uh, the requests from their handlers on the mainland? Kathy, is it um is your book satire? Uh, the 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 headline, and I can't blame you for this. You know what publishers are like. It says John Le Carre filtered through Tom Wolf. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of Le Carre in the book, though. Is there really? I mean, I think there's a light amount of tradecraft or spycraft. It's not. It's it's not uh, the the spy who came in from the cold. Uh, it's much more, I think, um, just on the tech side. So I think you're correct. Uh, I don't think it's a satire. I think that's frequently how my books are described. But you know, I I think as you know, in Silicon Valley, you don't need to satirize anything. You can just say things exactly as they're occurring, and that's enough. 
Explain what you mean by that. You mean it's such an absurd place that even if you write the truth, it seems like satire? Yeah, I mean, the personalities are outsized. The rewards are outsized. The the kind of power struggles are outsized. It's just, and the politics are frequently ridiculous. So you, you simply don't need to exaggerate at all. It's uh, It's all there, I think. It certainly is all there in your book. Uh, one of the things I loved about it, and it, it's a tremendous read. I just flew back from New York to San Francisco, and it's the perfect book to read on a on a five-hour transcontinental journey. One of the things I loved about it was the naming of of, of the company uh, that all this uh, uh, that the story is built around. The company is called Tangerine. Why did you choose that name? And, and what is it about tangerines that lend themselves to uh, uh, books when Le Carré is filtered through Tom Wolfe? You know, honestly, that was a name that I think one of my friends had at one point told me that he wanted to name his startup, but I guess he couldn't get the trademark because it was already heavily trademarked um, internationally, but I always liked it a lot. I always thought it would be the perfect name for a tech company. So I essentially lifted it uh, because I just thought it was perfect. Uh, last week, uh, Kathy, we had the, uh, the Snowden journalist, I don't know if that's a fair way of describing him, Barton Gelman, a very distinguished American journalist who, um, who, who ha- has or had a new book out, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance mm-hmm. State. It just came out in paperback. We've interviewed him a couple of times. He's a really smart, interesting guy. Um, to what extent is your book a kind of reversal of the Snowden narrative? I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I've never gotten that. I, I think it is a little bit of a reverse because in this case, the Russian agent, whose name is Julia Lerner, she doesn't really have a overall purpose, right? Like she she's in it for herself. She doesn't have a stated goal like Snowden does. And her goal is more to ensure herself a comfortable life. Versus I would say that Snowden has now kind of ensured himself a, a fairly uncomfortable life um, in exchange for what he believes are his higher purposes. Well, Julia's life is complicated. I don't know if it's uncomfortable. It's it's more interesting than um, Snowden. He, whereas Snowden's just locked in a room, I guess Julia's locked outside the room. Yes, yeah. And she because she's kind of trapped, right? And, and I think this is the existence for some of these assets in the United States. I mean, she has a life here and you get to enjoy it quite a bit, but there's always this sword dangling over your head that it could potentially be taken away at any time. I mean, I think for us as humans, we we wanna feel like we have control over our situation, whatever it is. So it's just interesting to think about someone who's so high up that you, that others might view as you know so powerful, um, being really not in control of their life at all. Uh, that was one of the things when I, I talked to to uh, to, Gel, uh, to Gelman. Um, I quoted him from the book about uh, his relationship to the authorities in Russia. Uh, to me, um, Snowden is um, tr- troublingly oblique about this. Uh, your book begins in Russia, um, and there's quite a lot of scenes based in Russia with with Russian agents. Not just the the the, the female um, heroine of the book, uh, Julia Lerner, but her handler uh, in 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 both Russia and America, and also her um, 
um, her upbringing, her rather sad, typical probably Russian upbringing. How much research did you do for the book about Russia? And what did you learn? I tried to do quite a lot. I mean, I think Russian espionage is a topic that you never really, as a fiction writer, you never really want to pose yourself as the expert on because there's always going to be someone that knows a lot more than you. And there's so many details to get wrong. Um, but, you know, I had spent a few weeks there um, with my husband. My husband speaks fluent Russian and he also lived there. So luckily, you know, I, I had a close resource and, you know, some of my very good friends live in Moscow and are Russian. So I had some resources that I could ask about those things. I also was fortunate enough to speak with some uh, members of the American intelligence community just for a background as to what might actually be occurring and how they might handle it if there was uh, someone like this in the United States, which there apparently are. So There really are. I mean, th th I have to admit, when I was reading the book, certainly at first, although by the end I was convinced, at first I thought this is a bit far-fetched, but then nothing's really <laughs> far-fetched these days, as you said, particularly about Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think there def there's definitely are. I mean, if you think about the amount of money that these tech companies are plowing into R&D, and I, also I just think Americans are, you know, amazing at innovation. I mean, just it, the ability to simply lift that and take that um, back to another country, I think it's, uh, the value proposition is clearly there. And I think until very recently, I don't think a lot of these companies were necessarily um, investing in, you know, cutting edge, uh, kind of, you know, uh, like cyber uh, information security protection. Kathy, the this this boundary between fact and fiction is, as you suggested at the beginning, and certainly in Silicon Valley, getting more and more confused. You have a real life too. I guess writing novels is a kind of real life, but you also are. You're you're an ex, you're a Harvard. Uh, business school graduate, you have a, a, a high-flying job in Silicon Valley itself. Uh, make sense of this confusion of fact and fiction. I was particularly struck uh, by this headline from Gizmodo uh, earlier this week. Uh, Bezos, Jeff Bezos' Amazon uh, now is buying MGM <laughs> and will, of course, own the James Bond franchise. Jeff Bezos himself is indeed looking more and more like a real-life <laughs> old villain, both physically and certainly in terms of his wealth and power and potential evil. Um, is there really fact and fiction left in, in a world in which somebody like Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion or near on $200 billion? You really want to hope so. You really want to hope there's a delineation. I mean, I, I was one of those people who was very disappointed to read the news about Bill Gates uh, this past week. I mean, you, you really want to hope that are the that the powerful and the you know the innovators here do not follow that familiar arc that we see all the time in movies and in fiction. And yeah, it's disappointing when they do. And you always hope that they won't, right? I mean, my personal hope is always that there's still will remain a delineation because otherwise, like, what are we? I mean, I feel like we're just following a formula, no matter how exceptional we are, how exceptional our creations is. We just seem to be folly to our to all the same sins as everyone else. Well, Jeff Bezos is certainly uh, not Jeff Bezos. That was a that was a Freudian error there. Uh, Bill Gates is certainly. Falling for all the sins, he, New York Times had this really incriminating piece uh, about his bad boy behavior. You mentioned <laughs> yeah. earlier you were disappointed about the divorce. 
are you surprised that even Bill Gates, the ultimate nerd, the nerd's nerd, should also be a naughty boy? I guess you hope for different, but then you examine yourself, right? Like I, I try to separate it. I think he's still done amazing things for the world. He has uh, d- done a lot for philanthropy, but you know, it, you feel on your human side, you feel a little disappointed. Uh, you know, once you read what, it, you're why not on your human side? Why can't you? You know, Bill Gates is clearly both a good and bad guy. He was very bad at Microsoft, and he's been very good giving away all his money. You would expect the same thing in his person. I mean, he's clearly a a decent father. He didn't beat, I mean, there's no stories about him beating up his wife. He's just, I wouldn't say a normal man, but there's nothing exceptional about what he did. Why should we be disappointed? I think that's a fair point. That's a very fair point. And I think that's something that you're always trying to grapple with in fiction, right? Like, because, I mean, I try to picture myself as a billionaire, uh, innovator, philanthropist, and what I might want to do uh, you know, and if I have certain base desires that all of us as a human have, whether I might, you know, with the understanding that one day I'm going to die just like everyone else, whether whether or not I might just go ahead and fulfill them. And, you know, I probably might if I was in those shoes. So I, your point, I think, is very is very fair. Uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so disappointed. I should just uh, just view him as a human man like like anyone else. Kathy, one of the things I loved about the book was your use of something you call God mode. This was um, a feature or a power at Tangerine. Tangerine is really, I think, I can say it, you'll probably deny it, but it's kind of based on Facebook um, (laughs) as this ubiquitous social media platform where everyone uses to do all forms of communication. And what Julia Lerner has is, along with the, the, the founder and CEO, the male founder and CEO of Tangerine, is God mode. She gets to see everything and everyone. Um, yeah. Kind of like a novelist, right? Yes, totally, one hundred percent. Tell me more. Why? Why are those two things alike, and why is it so shocking to have God mode in tech, and yet no one's shocked about it when it comes to writing novels? You know, it's funny because I had just always assumed that people at Facebook or Google, especially in the early days, had God mode. Um, And God mode is a term that I guess is actually used in the world. But I actually came up with it because I when I was a kid, I used to play Doom all the time. And I was very lazy and I'd always play in God mode to get to just have unlimited lives. And so uh, that's how that name came to me for the book. I mean, I, I really wanted, I mean, if I founded a company or I was responsible for generating billions of dollars a year in revenue for a company, I would want God mode. I mean, I, I from, for me, I, I just kind of assume that maybe Mark Zuckerberg still possesses God mode. I mean, if he doesn't, um, good for them because they've really instituted some, some great controls. But for myself as a novelist, when you think about, you're always thinking about the human side, you assume that these people have that power to look at all of our activity, um, all of our viewing, our location. You, you just simply assume that someone within those companies is, is looking at that and using it. I agree. And when I was reading your book, I kept on thinking about real life equivalents to Julia Lerner. And of course, the person who most obviously comes to mind is the number two at Facebook, just as Julia was the number two at Tangerine, Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, The more I think about it, actually, the more conceivable it is that Sheryl Sandberg is a Russian spy. What what do you think of the possibilities of that? I absolutely uh, do not. I mean, I don't 
have any opinion on that. I, I have never seen any evidence or heard anything that would indicate that. Um, well, maybe was... we can start the rumor, Kathy. Maybe it all begins here. Sheryl <laughs> Sandberg is a Russian spy. I mean, if 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 she was, it's a it, it would be a major coup for them. Uh, I really hope she is not for uh, you know the future of our democracy. I mean, she worked for Larry Summers, and, and you know we. Well, Larry Summers is certainly a Russian spy. I mean, he looks like one. <laughs> looks like he's been force fed in Moscow. Well, okay. Well, for for all of our sakes, I hope she is not. So uh, that that would be my official comment on that topic. In all seriousness, though, Kathy, that. And I, and I don't want to be too programmatic or boring here, but there is a, a, a feminist piece to this book. All the, all the main characters, all the strong characters are female, the two strong main characters, the, the Russian double agent and the, um, the Asian-American woman who, for the, the MIT graduate who lost a boyfriend and is miserable and sits in a room all day but uncovered Julia's sins or perceived sins. They're both female. Sandberg, of course, is the author of Lean In. Uh, it's a great debate about um, Sandberg's theories of Lean In. Is there a Lean In manifesto in this book, or am I overreading it? I don't think uh, there's some level of it, I think, in the book. And I think for me personally, when I wrote it, I wasn't necessarily thinking about Sheryl Sandberg. It was more, I was thinking about actually Hillary Clinton and All right. how I hope that, you know, when she went, you know, after the election and after all of those insults, I hope that when she went home, like she's not crying about it, that she's actually pretty tough. And so for me, crafting that character of Julia is a kind of wish fulfillment that, you know, I think it's really hard. I think for a female executive, for some, a female to rise to the executive level, I think at a tech company, you have to exhibit or possess certain unsavory traits that you then can never display publicly because it just wouldn't be acceptable, especially in the female executive. And that dichotomy has always really fascinated me, right? Like you have to be quite ruthless, I think, man or woman, to rise to the top of these companies. And yet, I think especially if you're a woman, you simply can't ever show that or display that side of yourself in public. Well, you can, but then you become controversial. Then you become Elizabeth Holmes, um, who of course was the, the founder of Theranos, lots of films and books about her. Uh, the funny thing about Holmes though, uh, I know quite a lot of quite, senior, powerful female execs in Silicon Valley, and they still love Holmes. What's your take on Elizabeth Holmes? As She was the ultimate imposter, of course, but she was exposed. I had no idea that she was still beloved in Silicon Valley. Is she really? That's what well, that's the, maybe I'm Maybe I'm mixing with the wrong women. <laughs> um, you know, look, I think Elizabeth Holmes was very young, and she went... She but was that's not an excuse. Is it? It's it's not an excuse, but I think that when you're very young and you're told from a young age that you are a genius and that you know you have billions of dollars chucked at you, and when you get an idea, everyone else forms an echo chamber and tells you it's great, and you know very a lot like a lot of more senior established people come and sit on your board and tell you you're 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 great as well. I mean, I think. Uh, a lot of us might be uh, become someone a little bit Holmesian, although I would hope not. Uh, but you know, I, Holmesian. That's, uh, I like the uh, the, uh, the Sherlock but, Holmesian uh, analogies there. I, but I do think her behavior was criminal. So, 
Because yeah, well, it clearly was. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about another very senior female executive in Silicon Valley. Marissa Meyer had been very senior at Google, then became CEO at Yahoo and didn't do a great job there. Some people have said to me, and I think this is a fair point, that someone like the, the Yahoo job was always the bad job to get because Yahoo was a failing company. And that somebody like Mayer would have only got the Yahoo job. Um, it would have been harder for her to get a high fl- a job at a, a more high-flying, bound-for-glory uh, tech company. Um, do you think that's true? I mean, even Sandberg is still number two at Facebook, which is still, I mean, it's, it's still kind of weird. Maybe, maybe she really is a Russian agent. Why she would want to stay at Facebook and still work for Mark Zuckerberg, who always looks so miserable. Well, I think there's very few CEO jobs in the world that surpass being COO of Facebook, right? Like I can only think of a few, right? Like maybe CEO of Disney or something. So that's always just been my assumption mm. about Sandberg. But what about I, I the think- Maya, the, the Maya question about, you know, senior women seem to only get the the bad jobs in Silicon Valley, even if they're CEO jobs. I don't know that much about, I mean, I know a little bit about the financial state of Yahoo when Marissa Mayer took it over. I mean, from my perspective, I thought it was a good promotion for her, right? It's an interesting opportunity for her. Uh, It's hard for me to make a call as to whether or not that was a bad job, partially because under her leadership, it might have turned a little bit not so great right so that's why but again i'm not fully educated on that topic i mean i do think she she got that job because she was a young glamorous executive as well so i think it also it worked for her uh, in her in her favor um but uh you know i was rooting for her to succeed you know i, I still hope that we see another uh, marissa mayor kind of resurgence at some point and hopefully she can emerge triumphant yeah i think that would be impressive um uh, Kathy, this week, along with the uh, the Russian hacking story, lots of reverberations from um, uh, uh, a so-called mis- misogynistic Apple hire. Uh, the writer uh, Antonio Garcia Marquez, the um, uh, the author of a, of a popular book, another kind of critique, I guess, of Silicon Valley. Um, got a job at Apple, the Apple uh, employees fought back and he's out. What do you make of that? And what do you make of general misogyny in the Valley? So I think those are two like potentially separate topics, um, his book and, you know, misogyny in the Valley. Um, we can talk about his book f- first, I think. That's Chaos Monkey, right? His book. <laughs> his, his, I mean, the book is fascinating. I mean, the the debate around it is fascinating because I think both sides have very valid points. I think, you know, I'm always someone that airs more on free rights of free speech. So it, it does concern me a little bit that things that you write, you know, that you create in the name of art um, can be used against your employment like that. That's always very concerning to me. Um, but, you know, I was having the debate with another friend of mine and they they brought up a really good point. They said, you know, what if your boss had written this book? Like, would you feel, would you feel okay with them managing you? And would you feel like they could uh, manage your career, you know, rank you every year correctly? Like, would you feel that it was fair? And in that case, I might feel a little bit more uncertain. So I, I think what makes this case so interesting is that there, there are valid points on, on both sides. Um, it's, I'm interested. 
interested to see how what happens from it, if anything. As I said, Kathy, that there are two main characters in the book, uh, the Russian spy and a, a woman called Alice, um, an Asian-American graduate of MIT. Um, you uh, recently, I found this piece in, on People saying that you, so it's not me saying it, but I don't know where they found this, that there, maybe you said it, there's uh, pressure on you to write only Asian characters in your work what's that story about you know i think there is the trend right now in publishing to want diverse voices which is which is great and wonderful but i think oftentimes when they when they think of wanting a diverse voice they want a very traditional kind of asian story right they want to base it on something else that's been successful before so on the asian side you have you know the joyla club and crazy rich asians and you know that's kind of i feel like how they imagine um, a successful uh, novel um, along the Asian American front. Um, you know, for me with this book, it was suggested at some point that I make the spy Chinese American as well, or Chinese as well. Mm. And what do you mean suggested from your editor, from friends? I mean, yeah, I think there's multiple points in the process where they're. Well, like, the oh, Russians were they putting pressure on you? The Russians, Putin's <laughs> people, possibly. And you know, but and the thing is that complicates it is. You know, at the time, I, I really did not want to write kind of a Asian character that was not loyal to the U.S. just because of the political situation at the time was so right. tenuous and we've seen it. You know, at the same time, it's complicated because obviously China does engage in a lot of this espionage within the United States, um, as the United States does within China. And so it's entirely possible that there could be Chinese American spies within the Valley. They're probably, I mean, there likely are. Uh, but, you know, for me, I just did not want to present um, my my own nationality that way in, in this work. Uh, it was Alice slightly autobiographical. She's a, an MIT graduate who struggles with self-confidence. Uh, I, I love the title, by the way, of the book, um, Imposter Syndrome. I looked it up. Um, and that's with two O's. I, I, I've actually spelt your subtitle wrong. Uh, the book comes as I-M-P-O-S-T-O-R. Imposter syndrome, at least on Wikipedia, um, is, a, 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 and I'm quoting here, a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their skills, talents, or accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Um, that, that's certainly something about that in Alice, even though she has no reason to do that, where Julia is a fraud and yet has no imposter syndrome. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I don't think Alice is autobiographical simply because I wish I had gone to MIT and I definitely do not, uh, did not, uh, you know, but I, I did really want to craft a character that was a very typical, I think, Asian engineer and an Asian engineer in the minds of how I think a lot of Valley executives think of them, kind of these interchangeable cogs that went to schools like MIT or IIT that you can slot in at low-level software engineer positions, but that will never possess the leadership skills to actually manage uh, teams or companies. And that's exactly the kind of character I wanted to create uh, and, to, and to show because they are, we are all over the valley. And I don't, I don't think there's been much representation of, of, of that group. 
why the need for a boyfriend though? I mean, she seems to have been defined at, at least early on by being miserable because her boyfriend left her. I simply wanted her to be single. So I almost, I don't know if you know the term like otaku. It's like a Japanese, it's a no, Japanese term. It's kind of, I think it's, it's, it's kind of positive now, but it's these, you know, this group of people that just, they don't want to really get married and they play video games. They just want to be with a computer and play video games and eat, eat ramen. <laughs> uh, it actually sounds quite pleasurable and in like a lot of our lives in the last year, but uh, I kind of wanted to create a character like that. But I, I just think it's really hard in fiction to have a single woman that's 35 and not at least give a brief explanation for why they're single. And so that's why I made her recently dumped just to be like, well, she had a relationship, but, but now it's now it's like this. Um, and I, I wanted her to be lonely. I think, I think there's so many of us that are lonely in the valley or there's so many people that experience that, that feeling. And I, I wanted that character to be lonely. And, and the curious thing is that both she and uh, Lerner, they're both lonely in different kinds of ways, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And, you know, I think, I think it's, it's more universal, right? And it's, it's funny. I think Americans, whenever I ask, say something about loneliness or I say something about shame, like I feel like they're very uncomfortable because you're not supposed to feel that way. But I don't understand because it's, it's so universal. All of us feel, feel um, those emotions quite often. You talked a little bit about your, and I didn't know that story. It's really interesting that you you didn't want to make uh, the spy, the central spy in the story, Asian because of um, anti-Asian feeling, of course, in all seriousness. Uh, sorry, in all seriousness. Um, lots of violence now in the Bay Area and elsewhere against Asians. A uh, recent story this week about uh, a cartoon about Andrew Yang in, the, in, a, in a New York paper. Uh, the tourists are back cartoon. What's your general take on this seemingly rise of um, anti-Asian racism, both in Silicon Valley and in America generally? I mean, I think it has to do with, I mean, obviously when I wrote this, it was actually prior to when it was kind of in the media. And so there's a, there's actually a scene in the book where someone gets an Asian character is attacked. And when I first wrote that, it was actually suggested that I tone it down. And I did because um, they said that it was just too unbelievable to have happened. And, uh, you know, unfortunately only now in the current situation is this, do you kind of see the, the likelihood of it? You know, I think it's obviously a byproduct of all the Wuhan flu and et cetera comments that have been made, um, you know, obviously during the Trump administration and beyond. It's a really complicated topic that I struggle with because of things like, you know, the lab leak theory and all those things too, where <sighs> I'm, I'm trying to form my thoughts on this one. I just, it's a, it's a complicated topic because I think that Asian Americans occupy a very strange nexus right now, especially with the rise of China and the increasingly antagonistic relationship between China and the United States. And what can a novelist bring to this that perhaps a nonfiction writer can't? I think you're more free in fiction. You're more free to write. You have God whatever. mode, right? You have God mode. You can write whatever you want and you kind of have plausible deniability. It's been kind of concerning for me over the last few years to see the the direction of journalism, I think on both sides, how quickly it, it shifts because of public opinion or public pressure. And I think in fiction, 
you can write things and uh, explore areas and themes without that fear. Well, you can even spell your words two ways. Did you say that uh, uh, the the book I got anyway, and the book I've seen uh, has imposter with two O's. Yes. Uh, as I said, I did your lower third with an E. Did you suggest that you can actually spell it either way, imposter? You can spell it either way. So I think most Americans spell it casually with an E at the, you know, between T and R, they put an E, but the proper, proper way I think is with an O, but they're both correct. You're not going to get dinged on your SATs if you spell it with an E. Now, I'm not going to say that only an American, Asian American would say that, but getting dinged on your SATs is not something that I'm going to lose any sleep on. Uh, anyway, it's a wonderful book, Kathy. Congratulations. As I said, I read it cover to cover, which I don't always do. Imposter Syndrome with two O's by Kathy Wang. She's also the author of the, the best-selling Family Trust. Uh, uh, this is her follow-up. And uh, so often second books are shall we say, stillborn or failures. I don't think this is going to be anything but a huge success. I can't wait for the movie. Maybe Jeff Bezos can play one of the characters. Maybe MGM can make it. Uh, congratulations on the book, Kathy. You are in Palo Alto, of all places. Uh, I don't know what a, a UC grad would be doing living down there. But anyway, you happen to be down there at the moment. Maybe that's where you live. Um, I'm up in San Francisco in these uh, waning days of COVID. People need to read your new book. It's a great book to read while we're still stuck inside. What else should people be reading though? I want to give three recommendations. Uh, so the first is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Um, this is one of my favorite books ever. If you haven't read it, you must read it. It's just the plot is wonderful. The writing is wonderful. It's a cowboy novel, but it's it has everything in it. So uh, it's one of the greats for sure. So I would definitely recommend Lonesome Dove. I wanted to recommend uh, Black Edge. And this is about uh, SAC Capital and Steve Cohen and kind of like their insider trading. It's a fascinating book if you've ever read, uh, I mean, if you've ever watched Billions and liked it, I think you would love this book. And there's it's, once you read it, you'll be like, why is Steve Cohen still walking out and about free? So read this um, really well done and researched. And the final is a, a kind of a novel. It's one of my favorite novels. It's a more modern one. Um, oh, a Visit yeah. from the Green Squad, Jennifer Egan. This is a book I read constantly. Every time you read it, you're just in awe of how talented Jennifer Egan is. And it really captures a lot of themes that I think are, are universal. So uh, even if you're like a tech person that only reads uh, Sapiens and et cetera, you can, you can read this one or Lonesome Dove for your fiction uh, dose of the day. So that'd be my recommendation. Well, my friend Paul Carr tweeted, if you're going to read one book for Silicon Valley people this year, it needs to be Imposter Syndrome. I agree with Paul, as I always do. It's a marvelous book, really fun, interesting, and in its own way, very thoughtful and challenging. Congratulations, Kathy. Keep well. We'll have to have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk more about why Sheryl Sandberg is a Soviet spy. Not Soviet, <laughs> right? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on.